You're listening to the So What Podcast. Much of the history of the Christian tradition, unfortunately, well, has adopted much of the supersessionist point of view. There were two principal gifts that God promised to Israel, uh, starting in Genesis 11 when he came to Abraham. And the first gift is that the Jews would be his people. You know, for some mysterious reason, uh, you know, he didn't choose the Chinese. He didn't choose the Americans. He chose the Jews. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. Unfortunately, I was feeling a little bit under the weather on this episode, but no worries. Matt kicked the conversation off for us, no problem. On this episode, we're happy to be joined by Dr. Gary McDermott. Dr. McDermott received his PhD from the University of Iowa and currently serves as the Anglican Professor of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School of Sanford University. He is the author, co-author, or editor of 18 books to include A Trinitarian Theology of Religions, and The New Christian Zionism, Fresh Perspectives on Israel and the Land. Before we head over to our discussion, we'd just like to thank you for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Well, let's head over to our discussion with Dr. McDermott. We're here this morning with Dr. Gerald McDermott of Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. Dr. McDermott, welcome. Thank you very much, Matt. Would you uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Well, I am the Anglican Chair of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School. I teach things Anglican. I teach the history and doctrine of the Christian faith from the ancient uh, fathers of the church all, all the way up to the 20th century. I also teach uh, Christian theology of world religions, and I also teach Jonathan Edwards. So I've written a bunch of books, uh, um, six books on Jonathan Edwards, about five or six on theology of the world religions, and then, oh, about uh, six or eight more on, on various theological topics, and one secular book on called Famous Stutterers that is coming out this fall. So it sounds like you have a broad range of expertise to draw on as far as the history of the church goes. And uh, so we're grateful that you've taken some time to to chat with us this morning. Um, I, I do want to tell, we have a lot of pastors who listen to um, the podcast, and I want to recommend one book in particular, uh, The Great Theologians, uh, Gerald McDermott, one that I've read and used and found very helpful. So uh, pastors, if you're out there and you're looking for maybe 
a primer on um, significant figures in church history and particularly how they uh, relate to the life of the church today. Great book to pick up, and maybe you could even read through it with a few of your laypersons. So that's one that I found particularly helpful. Thank you uh, for your work on that. Well, tell us, we're, we're kicking off a series on the gospel according to heretics. And this morning we are talking about Marcion and supersessionism. So maybe you could just give us a kind of a start the discussion and give us an overview of what the issues are. Sure. Marcion was a second century Christian leader and teacher and theologian who represented the worst of what's called supersessionism, a persistent heresy, uh, I would say, that has continued up to the present. Now, Marcion said, and he was very much influenced by the Gnostics, uh, and of course the Gnostics taught that matter is evil. I mean, they were very much influenced by Plato and Greek philosophy, and that only uh, things of spirit and that are immaterial can possibly be good and can possibly have come from God. And so Marcion bit into that hook, line, and sinker and came to the conclusion that since the God of the Old Testament is the God of creation, uh, he must be a bad God, an evil God, and that only the parts of the New Testament, and that doesn't mean all the New Testament, that cohere, cohered with Marcion's view of this God of immateriality, this God of absolute spirit, who rejects matter and creation, could possibly have been inspired by the, by the Holy Spirit. So he rejected Gospels like Matthew that are too Jewish, since the God of the Old Testament is the Jewish God, and the bad God, or even the false God, and liked especially Paul, uh, who he thought uh, taught a God of the New Covenant only, and not the Old Covenant, he taught that, that Paul rejected uh, Jewish law and that Paul was out of all about a gospel of immateriality as opposed to materiality. And so the early church, uh, you know, recognized, you know, very quickly that Marcion was a heretic and he was teaching false doctrine because the God of the Old Testament, the, the fathers said, was the same as the God of the New Testament, that the God who created the world is also the God who redeemed the world through his son, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. And, and so it was at that point, it was because of Marcion, uh, and Marcion's action to pull out some of the books in the New Testament and say, only these are inspired, only these should be the true Bible, the true scriptures of the church, uh, that the fathers said, well, we need to define what books are in the Bible. And that led to the first early definitions, the, uh, um, the first early orthodox lists of the truly inspired books of the Bible. That's a great point, because I think that's a misconception uh, with a lot of people. I hear it often that uh, Marcion was a heretic because he denied the Christian canon of the Bible. But that's anachronistic. There wasn't really a Christian canon of the Bible during Marcion's days. In fact, it was because of Marcion that these conversations needed to happen. So I, that's a very helpful point. And one other historical point um, is that the German theologians of the 1920s and 1930s 
who had bought into some of Nazi ideology, not all of it, loved Marcion. Harnack, of course, he was the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, loved, loved, loved Marcion. They were suspicious of this Jewish God. It's no wonder that under their influence, the German Christian churches in the 1930s made a rule that on Sunday morning, the Old Testament scriptures uh, cannot be read publicly in church or preached upon. And this gets us to the two, well, 1,800-year history of the heresy called supersessionism, which, which Marcin is just an egregious example of, and that we, uh, you know, um, I would suggest spend the rest of the time on, supersessionism. Agreed, yeah. Yep, certainly. So, so you said, and maybe this is a way into that, you said uh, Marcion is the worst of example of supersessionism. What's a better example, or is there one? Much of the history of the Christian tradition, unfortunately, has been, well, has adopted much of the supersessionist point of view. And let me explain. So, you know, it started with Justin Martyr, goes up through Irenaeus, uh, you see it especially in origin, and and then Augustine, a uh, weak form of it, but unfortunately the basic line of thinking uh, was adopted all the way through the Middle Ages, even up through Martin Luther and, and John Calvin, and, and then especially the father of liberal theology, Friedrich Schleiermacher. Uh, mm -hmm. And unfortunately it still affects much of the Christian tradition today, and particularly the Reformed tradition. So... Uh, I've probably shocked a lot of uh, listeners and stepped on a lot of toes, so I explain <laughs> what I'm saying here. What is supersessionism? Supersessionism is the idea that the church has superseded Israel. Or, now another way of putting it, is the church has completely replaced Israel. So this is also called replacement theology. And it goes like this. That in the Old Testament, you have God reaching the universal, the whole world, through the particular. And the particular is the land and, and the people of Israel. But as supersessionists have put it, and as many modern Christians have put it, as many historic Christians have put it, that when you come to the New Testament, the particular drops out. And all you have is the universal. That God brought uh, Jesus Christ as Messiah to earth in order to reach the whole world uh, and and Israel, the people of Israel and the land of Israel are no longer theologically significant once Jesus has been raised from the dead. That is supersessionism. And I've got two books in press, both of which argue that actually when you read the New Testament, uh, the people of Israel and the land of Israel are both given a future status, uh, that is, the authors of the, of the New Testament are looking to the people of Israel, even those who rejected Jesus as Messiah, and are looking to the land of Israel, uh, the present land of Israel in the Middle East, as having futures in God's providence. That rather than the particular dropping out, that in the New Testament, you've got the same model as the Old Testament, um, the same design for salvation that God reaches the whole world through, so the universal, 
um, through Israel, the people of Israel and the land of Israel, uh, um, and so the particular. And which passage? I'm sorry. Which passages do you have in mind there in the New Testament to help our listeners? Well, for instance, in John, which uh, historians uh, have typically called anti-Semitic, in John 4, Jesus uh, tells the Samaritan woman, um, salvation is from the Jews. Now, there you have it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the Jesus of the New Testament, who supposedly, now according to strict forms of supersessionism, is starting a new religion, completely cut off, from the Judaism of, of his day, mm-hmm. uh, is suggesting in John 4 in his statement to the Samaritan woman that that is not the case. Right. That he's not starting a new religion. Instead, he has come to fulfill the religion of biblical Judaism. And I'm thinking also maybe in Paul, you've got well-known passage in Romans 1, salvation is the power, or the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also the mm-hmm. Gentile. So you have this priority of Israel. Not, yes. not the just sort of forgetting of Israel. Paul allows for the, or not allows for, he uh, highlights the advantages that the Jews had yep. in Romans in the beginning of the letter as well. And the future. That's yes, right. yes, precisely. And then in Romans 9 through 11, mm-hmm. yeah. it, it's especially clear. He says in, in uh, Romans 9, this is a passage that never was understood by the church until after the Holocaust. Uh, and the Holocaust was a wake-up call for most Christians all around the world who had previously thought that God had finished his covenant with Israel, that there was no longer a covenant with ethnic Israel. And yet Paul says there in Romans eleven twenty-eight, after you know, after saying that a partial hardening has come upon Israel so that most of the Jews of the first century rejected Jesus as Messiah, although tens of thousands were told by Luke in Acts 21 accepted Jesus as Messiah, and many of the Jewish priests also accepted uh, Jesus as Messiah. Nevertheless, uh, the majority rejected Jesus as Messiah. And Paul makes this remarkable statement in Romans 11, verse 28. As regards the gospel, they, and he means the Jews who rejected Jesus as Messiah, are enemies of God for your sake. Now, interestingly, he says, for your sake. In other words, God purposely, and he said this in the uh, verses just before this, God purposely hardened the heart of the majority of Israel for the sake of the Gentiles. So a space would be opened for the Gentiles to see the Messiah and be received by the Messiah and to be welcomed in to Israel as associate members of the commonwealth of Israel, as Paul puts it uh, in the second chapter of Ephesians. So he says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God's God for your sake. And the reason why God had to send this hardening, Paul suggests in Romans 9 through 11, is because the rabbis taught that when Israel accepts the Messiah, then, then the end of the world will come. So if, it, so if a majority of Israel had accepted the, the uh, Messiah, the end of the world would come and, and there wouldn't be a chance for the millions and billions of future Gentiles to become a part of Israel by putting their faith in the God of Israel. So God sends this partial hardening, he puts it in Romans eleven twenty five 25, upon the majority of Israel for the purpose of fullness of the Gentiles coming in, he says in that same verse. So back to verse 28, he says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, 
God has made them has made them enemies of the gospel purposely for the sake of the Gentiles coming into Israel, you know, into the commonwealth of Israel by faith in that Messiah. And then he says, but as regards election, they are beloved uh, for the sake of their forefathers. Now, he doesn't say they were beloved, past tense. You know, they used to be beloved, but then they rejected the Messiah, and so they're no longer beloved. No, he's talking about the majority of Jews in the first century who still reject Jesus as Messiah. And he says, he uses present text, tense. They are beloved for the sake of their, um, of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, cannot be revoked. Now, what are the gifts and the calling of God? There were two principal gifts that God promised to Israel, uh, starting in Genesis 11, when he came to Abraham, you know, the father of the Jews. And the first gift is that the Jews would be his people. You know, for some mysterious reason, he doesn't, uh, you know, he didn't choose the Chinese. He didn't choose the Americans. He chose the Jews. You know, as the pundit once put it, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Um, but uh, it was odd, but he did. He chose the Jews. Why? We don't know. Just to clarify, uh, yes. Dr. McDermott, you're telling me Sorry. that the American people are not the chosen people of God. I, that comes as quite, quite a shock. <laughs> well, they're not God's first and principal chosen people. No, Jews are right. always God's chosen people. Now, that doesn't mean... Kyle's just trying to get you in trouble. Yeah, we're just... I'm <laughs> saying that a bit tongue-in-cheek, of course. <laughs> well, I know you're saying it tongue-in-cheek, and in tongue-in-cheek, I'll, I'll also reply, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have special purposes for all sorts of peoples around the world sure. in, in uh, special times in the history of redemption. So it doesn't mean that God didn't raise up the American people and the American nation for his providential purposes. One question that arises for me is, on the one side, you've got the argument of the supersessionists that the ethnic people of God, the Israelites, right. um, play no theological significance whatsoever. Right. Um, the other, what's, what's the other extreme from that? Um, you know, maybe a two-track kind of approach to Old Testament, New Testament. And is that helpful, unhelpful, and where's the middle ground, or, or if, even if that, is that the right language even? Well, yeah. Uh, there's where do we land? There is dispensationalism. Mm -hmm. Tell that, us about that. That has underwritten much of late 19th century and 20th century Christian Zionism. That is uh, typically the, the older dispensationalists would take attitude toward the modern state of Israel that would be hands-off and, and never critical of anything going on in the modern state of Israel. Uh, now, that's not true of the progressive dispensationalists today, but the traditional dispensationalists also would or, and do have all sorts of elaborate eschatological schemes. What's going to happen next in the end of the world, you know, before the end of the world or at the end of the world? You know, pre-trib and mid-trib and post-trib rapture, uh, for example. And those of us in, in a new movement called the New Christian Zionism are agnostic about eschatology. We don't presume to uh, know how and when God's going to do this and that at the end of the end times. So this New Christian Zionism is new for three reasons. Number one, it has nothing to do with dispensationalism. Number two, it's willing to criticize the present state of Israel. And number three, it is agnostic about eschatology. But 
it agrees with dispensationalists that supersessionism is wrong, that, that the church is not the new Israel. Now, you know, this is one of the great discoveries by scholars after the Holocaust, when they, you know, biblical scholars and, and theological scholars all over the Christian world woke up, as it were, and scratched their head and said, how is it that the most Christianized country in the world, Germany, with Protestant Christianity, how is it that we allowed a Holocaust? And one idea that came up was this idea that the church is the new Israel, that the church has completely replaced biblical Israel. And as W.D. Davies put it, who was a great biblical scholar in the 50s and the 60s, he says, never once does Paul ever call the church the new Israel. And never once does he call ethnic Israel the old Israel. Eighty times in the New Testament the word Israel is used. And never once does it refer to anyone or anything except the people of biblical Israel and the politeia, the polity called Jewish Israel. Never once does it refer to Gentiles. It always refers uh, to Jews and those Gentiles who assimilated themselves into Israel. When we talk about the relationship between the church and Israel, is it helpful to say something like, you know, the nations, the Gentile nations, do not supersede Israel, but are incorporated into uh, Israel. Grafted in, perhaps? Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm trying to use Pauline language mm -hmm. there, right? This language of they, incorporation. They are, they are grafted in, but not so that Israel is now, you know, sometimes somehow takes on a non-Jewish a non Gentile meaning. Mm -hmm. No, Israel is still, is still Jewish. And the Gentiles who are grafted in, Paul says, are fellow citizens now. They are associate members in the Commonwealth of Israel. They, they are like what was very common in the first century. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Gentiles all over the Roman Empire, you know, Philo tells us, came to synagogue on Saturday morning and Friday night and listened to Moses, as Luke puts it, and didn't become Jews but they became associate members of Israel because they put their faith in the God of Israel. They recognized immediately that this God of Israel, who was worshipped at the synagogue Saturday morning, was infinitely superior and far more beautiful than anything the gods of Rome and Greece represented. And they did not, most of them did not become Jews. Now, some of them did, you know, some converted and became Jews, but most of them were uh, were what the rabbis called righteous Gentiles who would have a share in the world to come as long as they obeyed the Noahic commandments, you know, commandments coming from the covenant with Noah, which are roughly equivalent to the Ten Commandments. So they were part of Israel, but that didn't make Israel non-Jewish. It didn't make Israel Gentile. No, no, Gentiles were associate members. And as Paul says, if they put their faith in the Jewish Messiah, they were adopted sons. They weren't not... They were not natural sons of Israel. So Israel is still Israel. Israel is still Jewish. You know, the people, the Jewish people uh, worshiping the God of Israel that has welcomed in Gentile associate members. Is it important to note at the same time, take it Romans, for example, that, you know, for Paul, you know, in chapter four, mm -hmm. he wants to insist that Jews and Gentiles participate in the patrimony of Abraham on equal footing. 
through faith in Christ. Yes, precisely. But, so associate members is not sort of second class members, right? No, no, it's not second class members, but it's different. Mm-hmm. Just as Paul says in his epistles that men and women are equal in, in Messiah so ontologically. One is not better than the other. One, one is not superior to the other in terms of being. But they serve the Messiah differently. Now, now of course, Christ means Messiah. And I use the word Messiah because I think it helps us remember uh, a, that's what Christ means. It means the anointed one, and the Meshiach is the anointed one, the Messiah. And it helps us remember the Jewish character of the Gospels, the Jewishness of Jesus, and the Jewishness of Paul. So, but Paul makes it very clear that even though men and women are equal in Christ, they nevertheless serve Christ differently. Sure. The, the man is the head of the home. Uh, the woman is not the head of the home. Mm-hmm. The, the husband is to love the wife, and the wife is to respect the husband. Their, their roles are different. So too, Jews and Gentiles in the kingdom of the Messiah uh, serve the Messiah in different ways. So I think the thing that I'm sort of driving at, and, and I think you're, you're, you're actually, I'm, I'm grateful for this conversation because I'm trying to dr- finish up a draft of a chapter in my dissertation on <laughs> Romans and Jewish oh, relationships whoa. today. <laughs> this afternoon, that's what I'll be doing. So the thing that I've wrestled with, and you can help me with this maybe, is um, Abraham in chapter four is prototypical of both Jew and Gentile identity. Gentile in the sense that he was justified before circumcision and Jewish in the sense that he's circumcised. Um, and so when you get into the later chapters, there's this sort of t- wrangling over table fellowship, which appears to be generally, a, generally not ex- exactly, but generally a Jew-Gentile distinction. Um, Paul puts himself with the strong, but it looks like they're still wrangling over unclean food and things like that. Yeah. And he doesn't want them to judge or dispute with each other on these ethnic distinctions. So he, he, he wants them to both be integrated into the people of God right. um, on equal basis as part of the Abrahamic covenant. Right. Um, and, he want, and, he, and he's happy with them maintaining their ethnic distinctions. Yeah. He just doesn't want those things to get in the way of their unity. Is true. That a, true. Absolutely right. Absolutely true. So yes. neither of them sort of take over. Yes. Um, yes. They, they have to find a way to welcome one another as Christ right. has welcomed all of them. Right, right. So there's this, and that's that's one reason I like this language of incorporation. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so, so what does this matter for the church today? Tell us why we need to, why pastors and uh, laypersons need to be paying attention to this discussion. Well, I think uh, for a host of reasons. Number one, theologically, it makes a difference when, when we think of Jesus as thoroughly Jewish. Even when we picture Jesus in our imaginations, and we all picture Jesus at the right hand of the Father, you know, Jesus is still a Jew, and he still has that mark in his body. You know, all Orthodox Christians believe he still has a body, his resurrected body. But there's continuity between his his so-called earthly body and his resurrected body. His family and friends could still recognize that this is Jesus of Nazareth, not just a cosmic Jesus by his particular face. Absolutely. You know, he still has resemblance to Mary, uh, his biological mother. Right now at this very moment. Right now at this very moment. And his body still has that mark on it that he received as an eight-day-year-old Jewish boy. As an eight-day-old, excuse me, Jewish boy. I like to regularly remind 
my congregation from the pulpit that right now in heaven, there's a human body named Jesus. Yes, yes. And it's a Jewish body. Yeah, absolutely. And so just in our imagination of who Jesus is today, also now your Reformed uh, you know, hearers will, will groove with this more than perhaps some other Christian listeners. This means, and I didn't have time to go into it, but, but one implication that has huge implications for the daily Christian life is that it never says in the New Testament that Christ came to set us free from the law. Now, all sorts of scholars and pastors will preach that Christ came to set us free from the law. That's not what the New Testament teaches. You know, by my lights, Paul says that Christ came to set us free from the curse of the law. But Jesus himself said, uh, I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And the word for fulfill, that, for fulfill there is a Greek word that's a translation of a Hebrew word, which means shed the fullest light on and, yeah. and, and, and provide the most ample meaning of. And the rabbis talked about this. Um, the rabbis said that when the Messiah comes, he will show us the deepest meaning of the law that we've never seen before. And that's what Jesus did, and that's what Jesus said he would do. I've come to fulfill the law. That's what that word fulfill means. Now, so Paul can talk about the law of Christ at times even. And that's the law of the Messiah. That's precisely yep. what the rabbi said the Messiah would do. He would lift the law as his law and give whole new meaning to it. But he doesn't do away with the law. And that's unfortunately what a lot of Christians have bought into, that the Jewish law no longer has meaning for us no longer has impact upon our daily Gentile Christian lives. Now, I would argue, one, that if we're Jewish Christians, Jewish you know, Messianic believers, that the law has far more literal impact upon us. And I would argue that that was the meaning of the decision of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Now, how about for us Gentiles? Do the kosher laws in Leviticus and, and in Deuteronomy have any impact on us? I would say, yes, they do but not in the same way as for Jews. Uh, now, Jesus said, every jot and tittle of the law has meaning, and he put it there. So what does that mean for us Gentiles? It means there's some sort of lesson in all those Gentile food laws. We learn spiritual meaning from the so-called ceremonial laws. So there, there are spiritual lessons for us. And Paul shows us in, in his use of the law that uh, there are all sorts of spiritual lessons that we can get beneath the literal meaning of the law. For example, Paul says, when Deuteronomy commands us not to muzzle the ox when he's treading out the grain, what that means is that we should pay our pastors. Now, most of us would say, what? <laughs> um, I thought the original intent of the author is the final meaning, as, as so many evangelical commentaries have taught. Well, not for Paul. That certainly was not the original intent of, of Moses or the you know Mosaic author of writing Deuteronomy. There was a deeper spiritual meaning, Paul said, or what the history of the church is called, typological meaning. Maybe we can call that theological interpretation of Scripture. <laughs> theological interpretation of Scripture, precisely. 
So what? Why should we care about Marcion and supersessionism? Well, to begin, Marcion placed his theology before scripture. In doing so, he essentially forfeited the rich truths found in many of the Old Testament books that the New Testament church built their theological and ethical foundation upon. Marcion thought he saw discontinuity between the God of the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, when in all actuality they are two persons of the same Trinitarian God. Additionally, the supersessionism, or replacement theology, that accompanies such thought not only severs the intended continuity between the Old and New Covenants, but it actually led to a complete jettisoning of the Jews as playing any role whatsoever in the present telling of God's story of salvation. If anything, this serves as a stark reminder that theology is important. Well, we hope you join us next time as we continue our series on the Gospel according to the Heretics, joined by Dr. Jim Papandrea to discuss Ebion and Adoptionism.